This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Two massive stories today. The Israeli Defense Forces today, just a few minutes ago, said that it was actually uh, a misfired missile by Islamic Jihad, uh, a group in Gaza that is the reason why 200 at least were killed in a hospital strike in Gaza. In the hospital, uh, doctors and nurses were treating hundreds of already wounded uh, Palestinian CNN reports thousands of others were taking shelter at the hospital at the center of Gaza City. Um, the Palestinian Health Ministry, which is controlled by Hamas, blamed the incident on an Israeli airstrike. But the Israeli Defense Forces just seconds ago on its Telegram channel uh, announced that the strike was caused by this misfired missile from Islamic Jihad. Um, CNN has not independently confirmed this. We're going to have much more on all that in a moment. Uh, But first, here in Washington, D.C., weeks of Republican dysfunction, House Republican dysfunction, crippling the legislative branch of the U.S. government. Today we saw um, a new chapter in this chaos here in D.C. as House Republicans tried and failed to elect um, Republican uh, Representative Jim Jordan, Speaker of the House. Um, That is a position second in line, third in line, uh, goes president, then vice president, then speaker of the house for the presidency. Includes Oval Office meetings, photo ops with world leaders, real power. Uh, you should know who Congressman Jim Jordan is, according to the January 6th uh, Select Committee. He was a significant player in then President Trump's attempts to illegally overturn the 2020 election. He re- met repeatedly with Trump staffers, with Rudy Giuliani, and others to create quote strategies for challenging the elec- election. Chief among them claims that the election had been tainted by fraud. Four days before the January 6th insurrection, uh, Congressman Jordan led a call with Trump and others about ways to delay the legal certification of the election and discussed how to use social media to encourage Trump supporters to come to the Capitol that fateful day. On January 5th, uh, Jordan texted then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to push him uh, to say that Vice President Pence should, quote, call out all the electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional and say that they are no electoral votes at all, which, of course, is not in the power of the vice presidency. Jim Jordan, according to the January 6th committee, also spoke with Donald Trump at least twice on January 6th as that deadly insurrection was unfolding. We do not know what they discussed because Congressman Jim Jordan refused to comply with a congressional subpoena. And Congressman Jordan has not offered up any clear answers publicly. I spoke with him on January 6th. I mean, I talk with President Trump all the time. On January 6th, did you speak with him before, during, or after the Capitol was attacked? Uh, I'd have to go. I, 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 I spoke with him that day after, I think after. I don't know if I spoke with him in the morning or not. I, I just don't know. Uh, I'd have to go back. and. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know uh, that when, when those conversations happened. So again... Congressman Jim Jordan refused to comply with a congressional subpoena, a subpoena issued by the very body that he now wants to lead. In response to the idea of Congressman Jim Jordan possibly becoming leader, Speaker of the House, this is what former Congresswoman and Vice Chair of the January 6th Committee, Liz Cheney, had to say. If the Republicans decide that Jim Jordan should be the Speaker of the House, there would no longer be any possible way to argue that a group of elected Republicans could be counted on to defend the Constitution. So that's where we are right now. 
And the chaos continues after 20 Republicans voted against Jordan becoming the Speaker of the House, sending the House into recess with no clear path forward at the moment. All this as this brutal war plays out in the Middle East. We're going to have much more on the war, including more personal stories in the hours ahead. Let's go to CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Manu, Jordan's people, his supporters, are predicting a second try at the speakership, another ballot that they want to force at some point today. Does he have enough votes for the second ballot? At the moment, he does not, Jake, which is why right behind, behind the scenes right now, Jim Jordan is in the Republican whip's office, Tom Emmerer, leading, meeting with some top Republicans, including key committee chairmen, in an attempt to try to assuage those concerns, win over some of those holdouts, talk about things that they want to try to bring them over to the Jordan side. But we're told from Jordan allies that there is a real fear that if this drags out into multiple ballots, that perhaps that opposition could actually grow and that could actually completely undermine his speakership bid. Before this first vote today, there was an expectation from Jordan allies that he would be he would do better than Kevin McCarthy did when he failed on the, on the first ballot. He ultimately became speaker on the 15th ballot back in January. But on that first ballot, McCarthy lost 19 votes. Today, Jordan lost 20 Republican votes. That is a major concern as they tried to close the gap. I talked to McCarthy about this earlier, but given the fact that some of those Republicans voted for McCarthy on the floor and and whether he believes Jordan should drop out, he is giving advice to Jordan and he's urging him to stay in the race, potentially for multiple more rounds of balloting. Jordan has just as many votes as I had on the first round. I think the difference here, too, is we have rules so we can sit down, talk to the other members and be able to move forward. And I asked Jordan himself whether he would continue beyond the second ballot. If he falls short of 217 votes sometime tonight, will he go to a third ballot? He would not answer that directly, other than saying, we need to elect a speaker, we need to get the House moving, because after in the aftermath of that historic and unprecedented ouster of Kevin McCarthy, Two weeks ago, nothing could get done here in the U.S. House, but it was that very reason that the ouster of McCarthy that has led to several of those people who voted against Jordan to not support him here. They simply do not want to reward, in their view, the hardliners who ousted McCarthy and are now trying to elevate Jordan, which really speaks to the tension that still persists within the House GOP. Unclear who can actually put this badly divided conference back together, lead this house, and bring it out of a state of paralysis. But at the moment, Jim Jordan is not able to get there. The question is, how much longer will he continue on with multiple rounds of balloting? Will any of those Republicans flip to his side, or will he decide it's time to bow out? All right, Manu Raju, thank you so much. With us uh, right now here in studio, uh, Colorado Republican Congressman uh, Ken Buck. Uh, Congressman, uh, good to see you. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, one thing, um, I don't know if you've heard that we've actually been praising you uh, on the show, and I, I hope that doesn't hurt you at home. It will. I, <laughs> I hope it doesn't hurt you at home. You're a very conservative Republican. It's very important to you that whoever is the next Speaker of the House acknowledge the fact that Joe Biden won the presidency. It's just a fact that he did, and you want the next Speaker to acknowledge that. I, I want the next Speaker to acknowledge that. I also want to make sure that we don't have somebody who was involved in the activities uh, surrounding January 6th. And I think that if we have a presidential candidate who uh, right now is leading, who denies that, the, that he lost the election um, and was uh, obviously behind what happened on January 6th, and we have a Speaker in a similar situation, we have 20 Republicans sitting in Joe Biden districts right now, by districts that Joe Biden won in 2020, and those 20 Republicans are going to be at risk. There's no way we win the majority if the message we send to the American people is that we believe that the uh, election uh, was, was stolen 
and we believe that uh, January 6th was okay. It was a tour of the Capitol. And I think that there are, I mean, this is probably one of the reasons why Republicans have had trouble winning elections in 2018 and 2000. Uh, no, I'm sorry, in 2022, and in, right? I mean, like all the other, and the, the midterms in 2018, 2020, and then 2022, right? I mean, all those other midterm elections have had problems because there are a lot of suburban voters who might like some of the things that Republicans are offering, but they like democracy too. Uh, well, I think uh, one of the messages, we, were, we, we underperformed. Republicans in the House underperformed. The expectation was that we would have a 30-vote majority, a 25-vote majority. We, in fact, have a four-vote majority right now. And so part of the dysfunction that you see is the fact that we don't have a large enough majority. And that I attribute to the fact that the message to the American people is muddled. It isn't that we're the uh, party of the rule of law, because obviously we don't believe in the rule of law if we aren't willing to say that the election results were, were accurate. But you're the only one speaking up about it like this. The only one that I can hear. I mean, even Congressman Bacon, who I would think, I mean, he, 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 didn't, he voted the same way you did to uphold the election, et cetera, but he's not saying things like this. Well, uh, Jake, I'll, I am not running for speaker, but I appreciate your kind words. I, I think that uh, more Republicans need to admit uh, what's going on, and, and we need to move beyond uh, the narrative that, that is out there. But do other, one, do other Republicans feel the same way you do? They're just not willing to say it out loud? Absolutely. I, I have talked to a number of people who have come up to me and almost whispered, thank you. Um, and, and I know... Whispered? Yes. No, there, there is Why a, are they so... Af- I don't understand. Why, what are they afraid of? Well, the Republicans who are going to vote against Jim Jordan on the second ballot, which will be more Republicans... More. Than, more, absolutely, um, uh, want the cover of saying, I voted for Jim Jordan, but now it's time to move on. The, the problem is they are afraid of a primary. The calls that are coming in are, are ridiculous. They're, they're in the hundreds, if not thousands, uh, that are coming into every office right now. The grassroots uh, campaign is, is very strong for Jim Jordan. Um, and that's because of the far-right activists that are, that are pushing this, the political operatives like Hannity, et cetera? I, I would say right, not far-right, being, yeah. being on the right. Okay. Yes, uh, I, would, I would say yes. They're, they're conservative activist groups that are uh, calling in across the country. So you and I are old enough to remember when Tom DeLay was a very effective majority leader, but there was always the push that um, if he became speaker, he was, just, he was just too toxic. It would be bad... For the House, and I feel like he even understood that, that he was just too radioactive. Jordan might be kind of in that vein, but maybe he doesn't understand that. Well, you know, uh, Jim Jordan has talked about defunding the, the FBI. Uh, he's talked about some things that are fairly radical to most Americans, the folks in the middle who we need to win if we're going to win elections. So, yes, I think, I think that he may not realize that, um, and he may want to back off some of those statements if he does become Speaker. But right now, those are the statements that he's made. You voted for Tom Emmer, but you don't like Tom Emmer. <laughs> First of all, is, I thought he was like a nice guy. He's not he, a nice he, guy? No, he's my friend. And I was oh, trying to make a joke. Oh, you're making a joke. Okay, and, okay. And, and it didn't go over very Who well. Who do you think would actually be speaker? How about somebody like Tom Cole, Tom Emmer? I mean, is there Steve Womack? Is there somebody who's just like conservative, Republican, and just kind of like a statesman-type character? Yeah, I think... I think the next move that was discussed in conference a little bit last night was to have a 30-day speaker. If a supplemental comes over from That's the... like a 30-day fiancé show. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> okay. But if, uh, if, if something comes over from the White House, a supplemental comes over from the White House, we're able to vote on it. We have 30 days to go in conference and hash this out. It, it's sort of a, a pause, but it allows the House to operate. Yeah, 30-day. That's messy, man. You guys need to get... What about you? No? No. But Thanks. All right. I don't say I didn't do anything for you. All right. Thank you so much, Congressman Buck. Good to see you. Let's talk with my panel right here. Uh, uh, Kevin, how you doing, buddy? 
Good. How you doing? <laughs> so you you uh you're you you've worked for these fellows on Capitol Hill. Well, first of all, just like what do, what do you make of this? Well, you know, the thing, when I worked up on Capitol Hill, you always had a sense of inevitability that there was a trend line operating in the right direction and something would happen, whether it was a bill on the floor or a leadership decision. Right now, I'm at a loss to see how this thing ends. Like, I just do not see somebody or enough leverage by the leadership to drive towards 217 votes for one candidate. And so... I think this drags on a lot longer than we think. But how can that be, Jamie? I mean, there are just like unobjectionable House Republican leaders like I just mentioned, like Tom Womack. I mean, how, um, how can you ask me Steve, this Steve Womack, Tom Cole, Tom Emmer. These are just, you know, good House Republican leader types. Like what's I don't even understand. Look, remember 15 rounds. Remember yeah. that uh Kevin McCarthy. But that was an objection to Kevin McCarthy because they didn't think he was trustworthy. I I understand that. Two things. One is I think Congressman Buck may be the bravest member of the Republican uh, conference right now to we're, come we're, out we're hurting and say, you. We, we keep hurting, we're, we keep hurting I, you. I'm very sorry to say this, Start but saying bad things you about sound him. like we're Liz. Gonna Ch- we're going to hurt him in his, like, in his re-election. You sound like Liz Cheney right now. Oh, my God. Now we're so, really doing it. But, but the reality is... What the congressman is saying is common sense. The problem is you're the only one we're hearing it from. Yeah. I, I am hearing from, from other Republican members, though, about something you mentioned, Congressman, and that is the notion of letting uh, the Speaker pro tem, Patrick McHenry, be empowered to go forward 30 days, 45 days, maybe be extended well, as a compromise. As long as the congressman hasn't been uh, secretly whisked out. Let me just, <laughs> what, what do you think of that idea? We had Congressman, I think it was Jimenez, was uh, on, the, right. on the show earlier saying this, the idea of just like give, give McHenry some powers just so we can do supplemental bills, just so we can do, what, what do you make of that idea? I, I think it's a good idea uh, for a number of reasons. One, we're getting beat up right now, so yeah. it, it would pause that. Two, uh, there is a very serious world situation in, in Israel, Ukraine. Uh, we would allow the Congress to function. We haven't gotten a supplemental from the White House, but it would still allow us to function. Um, and, and third, it would give us time to get into conference behind closed doors and find that person to lead us for one year. We also have time running out on the clock for uh, the, the, the shutdown if we don't don't fund the government. Yeah, until you guys sneak him out like Taylor Swift at a restaurant, we're going to keep we're going to keep doing that. Just a warning. You know, listening to you talk about, isn't there some conventional conservative Republican that yeah. there were some of those? Eric Cantor was one. He lost in a primary. John Boehner was one. He was ousted by a conference with a Jim Jordan-inspired Freedom uh, yeah. Caucus on the rise. Uh, Kevin McCarthy may have been seen as one for uh, many Republicans at one point. Uh, he was just vacated from his job. The, the reason is the Republican Party has moved. And right. so what is sort of a, a conventional conservative establishment Republican that can unify that way is no longer so for the, the a critical swath of the Republican Party that is driving a lot of the energy inside. The I think party. the key to understanding this is not to think rationally, right. <laughs> to think in a very nonlinear way. But one of the questions I'd have for the congressman, if I may, is what about the legality uh, problems that you might have with giving, empowering an acting speaker? And also, this is still an institution that operates on precedence. The precedence that you, the precedent that you would set if you were to give an acting speaker uh, authority, does that not con- some concerns that the that the uh, the conference has on that? There's no precedent for vacating a speaker. 
this is the first time that's ever mm-hmm. happened. So you're right. There's no precedent for giving powers of, you know, on a limited basis. I, I think what you probably have to do is just trust um, uh, Patrick that he would give up power in 30 days. So he is the speaker. There's just an agreement that in 30 days we would have a new speaker or 45 or whatever. The and he has said he doesn't want the job, right? He, is, he has been. Well, he said he doesn't want to be nominated by the Democrats for the job. If it was right. a Republican and um, one Republican has said he will file the motion, uh, that's a little different. So he needs to go vote. So we're going to let him go. We're going to take a commercial <laughs> break. Thank you one and all for being here. Uh, when, we, uh, when we come back, we're going to keep uh, covering these two massive stories The United States of America legislative branch does not have a Speaker of the House. And, of course, there is some horrible bloodshed going on in the Middle East. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We're back with today's other top story. Right now, an explosion of violence in the Middle East after a massive strike at a hospital in Gaza that killed hundreds, according to Palestinian officials. All as President Biden prepares to head to Israel, an extraordinary wartime trip. We're going to get to CNN's Clarissa Ward on the ground in Israel in a moment, but let's bring in CNN's MJ Lee at the White House. MJ, the Gaza hospital strike is already impacting President Biden's trip to Israel even before he's left Washington. That's right, Jake. The president was supposed to be wheels up within a number of hours, but already his itinerary has been affected. Uh, The Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas pulling out of what was supposed to be his meeting with President Biden that was supposed to take place in Jordan with a number of other regional leaders. Uh, Obviously, as these horrific images and scenes and reports of hundreds of casualties and deaths uh, pouring out of this hospital in Gaza. And so far, Jake, I can tell you that uh, White House officials, U.S. officials that we have been uh, reaching out to, we've really been met with uh, radio silence. Uh, Nothing uh, yet officially from the U.S. side in terms of a reaction uh, to this deadly strike in Gaza, uh, this hospital strike. Also, just nothing uh, in terms of any kind of reaction, any changes potentially to the president's trip. Again, that was supposed to commence in just a number of hours. Uh, Jake, I think uh, it goes without saying that all of this just happens to so uh, vividly and unfortunately capture just what an extremely volatile situation this is that the president is walking into uh, both physically and uh, diplomatically. Uh, Obviously, one of the key uh, issues that the president plan to address and try to sort of make progress on uh, was supposed to be sort of the uh, diplomacy side of this, trying to also stress uh, minimizing civilian casualties as much as possible. And now we have a situation uh, just on the eve of the president making this trip, a situation where the different sides are giving conflicting uh, reports of who is even responsible uh, for this deadly strike. The IDF is saying that it wasn't the Israelis. Uh, This was a failed uh, rocket launch. And uh, obviously Hamas has been saying uh, that this is uh, the, you know, on the hands of the Israelis. So even before the president has uh, physically made this trip, has gone to the region, we are seeing just what an incredibly volatile and complicated situation uh, he is walking into. Uh, Again, Jake, I think the fact that we have yet to hear anything official uh, from the White House and U.S. US officials uh, goes to show they are scrambling right now to try to gather as much intelligence as possible so that they can put something out addressing the strike itself uh, and then obviously trying to figure out what all of this means for uh, his trip because uh, again a part of his agenda has already been affected Uh, he is no longer going to be meeting with one of the key players that he was supposed to meet with in jordan 
All right, MJ Lee at the White House, thank you so much. Let's go now to CNN's Clarissa Ward, who's on the ground in Ashkelon, Israel, which is a few miles north of the Gaza border uh, on, on the uh, Mediterranean uh, Sea. Uh, Clarissa, what, what do we know for sure about this hospital strike? What we know for sure, Jake, is that there has just been an astonishing loss of life here. Uh, Just horrific scenes in the videos that are starting to come in. Uh, We've been hearing from Palestinian authorities, two to three hundred killed. But Hamas is now saying on their official uh, Telegram channel that they believe 500 people were killed. Obviously, it's very difficult to know exactly uh, those numbers as they will be going through the rubble through the night, trying to find uh, how many people were uh, killed in the attack. We do know that thousands of people were taking shelter in the Al-Ahli Baptist Hospital. This is a hospital in Gaza City. This is in the northern part of Gaza. That is the part of the enclave that uh, IDF had asked uh, people to evacuate back on Friday. But many people, Jake, uh, including many who we've spoken to, uh, simply were not able to evacuate, either because they couldn't find somewhere to go or they didn't have a a proper means of transportation. There was also heavy uh, Israeli strikes along the border, the southern border, uh, this morning, which then, of course, makes people afraid to leave their homes. So for the moment, what we know is that there is a huge amount of anguish and rage uh, on behalf of people living in Gaza and in the West Bank and, frankly, all across the region, uh, a sense of uh, just disbelief that a hospital uh, could be targeted. The IDF, as you've mentioned before, saying that they were not responsible, that it was Uh, potentially a misfired rocket from a a group known as Islamic Jihad inside Gaza. Palestinian officials categorically denying that, saying that this was an Israeli strike. But what we certainly know, Jake, is that this is a hideous and very bloody inflection point in this conflict. It raises the specter of much more violence, not just in Gaza, but potentially in other flashpoints as well, and indeed throughout the region. Uh, Israel has already come out and urged its citizens to leave Turkey. And all of this happening, as you just heard from MJ, uh, as President Biden appears to make uh, is about to make his visit here, Jake. And Clarissa, you just mentioned the West Bank. Uh, We've seen violent protests there in, in the wake of the hospital strike. That's right. We, we saw them in the hours after uh, it became clear just how many people had died in this hospital strike. You heard Hamas call on people uh, throughout the world, basically, to go out and do whatever they could to, to give voice to their rage and anguish. Uh, clearly, that call has been met by many, even those who don't necessarily support Hamas, but who feel that this is just a completely unjustifiable act of hideous violence. And so you saw uh, those clashes taking place in the West Bank. You saw as well uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas saying that he would not meet with President Joe Biden, canceling that meeting. They have declared a state of mourning uh, for three days. Flags are to be flown at half-mast. We have also uh, seen reports of violence uh, outside the Israeli embassy in Amman, Jordan. Um, And certainly the expectation is that it's only going to get worse, potentially, Jake. All right, Clarissa, stay with me. Uh, We're going to have more in just a moment about this uh, devastating uh, hospital strike. Um, 
But uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We're back with more on that awful hospital strike in Gaza. CNN's Clarissa Ward is still with me. Um, Clarissa, this obviously is awful, um, whomever is responsible. How does it complicate the humanitarian crisis in Gaza um, beyond the obvious death and destruction of what happened? Well, I think it remains to be seen what the impact will be, Jake, but the assumption is that you will have all parties now retracting from previous agreements to kind of come together, in a sense, and work to create a mechanism that would allow aid to go into Gaza, that would allow foreign nationals to leave, potentially also some of the most seriously wounded to leave. The UN says that 600,000 people have left their homes in the northern part of Gaza, are currently in the south. They don't have water. Our own uh, CNN producer has described having to boil water from the toilet to give to his family. Uh, They don't have electricity. Uh, According to the UN, they have about six days' worth of food left in the stores. And after that, people who are already hungry uh, will potentially not have anything to eat at all. And it has been very difficult at the best of times during this conflict, and there really haven't been any best times, but it has been difficult to get Egypt and Israel and Hamas and the U.S. and all these parties to come together and try to create this humanitarian corridor. One can only assume now that many people will want to simply walk away from it altogether, despite that flurry and intensification of diplomatic efforts. And so it's one of the sort of oldest cliches of war, but it happens to be very true that it is the civilians who will suffer incredibly as a result of this. Already, those people who had fled their homes, who had been told to leave the north and go to the south, have found that they have arrived in the south of Gaza, and there have been strikes in Khan Yunus, and there have been strikes near the Rafah border crossing. And so for those who stayed in the north, they say, I spoke to one family today, they say, well, we're not going to leave because, A, there's nowhere to go, and, B, there's nowhere that's safe. So certainly, I think, given that President Biden is arriving here tomorrow and that we heard from Secretary of State Antony Blinken yesterday, 
yesterday talking about this plan that had tentatively been agreed upon to create some kind of a humanitarian zone. There will be a massive intensification now of efforts to try to keep that plan in motion, but obviously very real concerns that it will be completely scuppered um, by this atrocity and by the fallout and the backlash and the violence that will almost certainly ensue as a result of it, Jake. So I don't know if you've had a chance uh, to look at it, but uh, the Israeli government has posted on um, X, formerly known as Twitter, some videos that they say show that it was a uh, misfire of rockets by Islamic Jihad, uh, which they classify as a terrorist group, that, that is the reason this atrocity happened at the hospital. Um, I am not an expert on figuring out what's a misfired missile versus a rocket, but, I, but you have much more experience in war zones. I don't even know if you have Wi-Fi where you are, but, but have you had a chance to look at this? Um, we do have Wi-Fi. What I would say is this is an information war as yeah. well, Jake. Yeah, absolutely. And as journalists, we do our best to try to walk the line. And we have many different actors telling us all different sorts of things. Uh, we have an incredible open source investigative unit that is pouring over that video and many other videos as well, trying to work out exactly what happened here. And as soon as we get a fuller picture, we will obviously bring it to our viewers. Yeah, no, no question about it. Uh, and it's just... As you note, everybody has the narrative that they want to push. And then there are, of course, the facts. And we want to bring the facts as soon as we can. Clarissa Ward uh, in Israel doing a yeoman's job over there. Thank you so much for everything you're doing for our viewers. Really appreciate it. At the border of Gaza and Egypt, the Rafah crossing. Thousands desperate to escape, but not allowed to escape. Trapped as war rages on around them. We're going to bring you their stories next. Israeli officials say that the Rafah crossing, the one and only passage for civilians to get out of Gaza currently, remains closed, which means that the thousands of Palestinians waiting along the Egyptian border are stuck, trapped in an area that Palestinian officials say is under constant bombardment from Israeli airstrikes. CNN's Salma Abdelaziz shows us the dire humanitarian crisis on the ground. And a warning, some viewers may find this report disturbing. This city should be the way out of the war zone. But it too is caught in the crosshairs of Israel's relentless air assault. You are looking at the aftermath of airstrikes on Rafah. Thousands have flocked here in recent days, seeking safe passage, only to find more death. My children, oh God, please find my children, this man pleads. They are under the rubble, oh God, please pull them out. It is unclear if his children survived. Israeli bombardment has killed dozens here in recent days, according to Palestinian officials. The city, which sits on the Egyptian border, is home to Gaza's only possible humanitarian corridor, a corridor that is now inoperable and unsafe, the WHO says, because of Israeli bombardment. And at the border crossing, footage shows smoke billowing, for multiple airstrikes nearby on Tuesday. Desperate families gather here for hours a day, praying authorities will allow their exit. So far, a diplomatic standoff keeping this crucial corridor shut. Cairo is reluctant to take in refugees, but says it wants to see aid allowed into the enclave. 
Israel's government has imposed a complete siege of Gaza after Hamas terror attacks killed some 1,400 people. It says it aims to wipe out Hamas. We continue to operate and strike Hamas targets as uh, we have defined before, and we try to do that according to the law of armed conflict and, of course, to minimize civilian casualties. Intensive efforts by the U.S. and the U.N. are yet to resolve the logjam leaving countless people, like this Michigan resident, stuck. With the war, they, I, I can't sleep, a lot of bombs. These people here, these people here live. It's not life. On the Egyptian side of the border, life-saving aid is piling up. And with more than 10,000 wounded Palestinians and a health care system on the brink, every hour counts. That's why it's critical to get there. This is for people like pregnant women. We know that there are 84,000 pregnant women and many of them are delivering every day. Babies don't, don't care about bombs. They come when they come. Gaza is in a stranglehold, rights groups say, under siege and under attack, with innocent civilians desperate to escape a growing hellscape. Salman Disease, CNN, London. And our thanks to Salman, Salma Abdulaziz for that report. It's been 10 days since Hamas launched its terrorist attack, and the horrors of what those terrorists did are, are still coming to light, and we're going to bring you some of those grim details next. We're still learning about the savagery from that unprecedented terrorist attack by Hamas uh, two Saturdays ago in Israel. Today's search and rescue volunteers who were first the first responders on scene held a press conference to share their firsthand accounts of what they saw on that horrific day. What's going on in the Middle East right now is a direct result of what happened on that horrific day. So it is important for us to remember what happened. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is live in Jerusalem for us. It's a gut-wrenching story, Jeremy. I'm sorry that you had to go through it. Uh, We want to tell our viewers, be careful. The story is difficult, but bearing witness is important. No doubt about it, Jake. Listen, Yossi Landau is a 30-year veteran of this Zaka search and rescue group. He has been to the scene of terrorist attacks and natural disasters around the world for decades now. But he says that he has never seen anything like he did two Saturdays ago. Uh, We should note that CNN has not independently verified uh, some of his testimony, although we do have evidence of similar atrocities committed by Hamas. And I also want to warn our viewers once again that the testimony you're about to hear is very graphic. Ten days after Hamas carried out its attack in southern Israel, Yossi Landau is still discovering fresh horrors from that day. When we were going to clean up, uh, to pick up the terrorists, it was like all of the houses in the back were the field over there. And there was one terrorist body over there. And we went, and just right next to him was a body of this 14, 15-year-old. Head chopped off. We were looking around for the head. Couldn't find it. Landau is a 30-year veteran of Zaka, a search and rescue group that specializes in recovering the victims of mass casualty events but he has never seen anything like the horrors of October 7th. On your way to Kibbutz Beri, you came across 
a shelter. You found 20 people inside, and they were burned alive. I first came into that place. I saw they were hugging. They were trying to, to escape and to defend themselves. When people are burned alive like that, they suffer. They suffer. Till they burn, they suffer. For hours, Landau and his team of 30 volunteers worked painstakingly to pry friends, relatives, and perhaps even lovers from each other's arms. We have to take out each and every one and to take them apart while they were burned. Only this took us about four to five hours. At Kibbutz Be'eri, Landau and his team found a family of four around a dining room table. On one side, the parents. On the other, a boy and a girl, about six or seven, all with their hands tied behind their backs. You said that the bodies that day, they spoke to you. They told you stories. When you got to Kibbutz Be'eri, what was the story that you found in that first house? The terrorists were having a ball, eating the food that was on the over there that was prepared for the holiday. Landau said all four had a bullet hole in the back of their heads and signs of torture. And I saw the father. It was fresh. It wasn't, it wasn't something that he was suffering to be missing an eye. He was missing an eye. This happened next to the, the children. Children screaming, I'm sure. In another house, Landau found a pregnant woman, shot from behind and stabbed in her stomach. A, kn a knife stabbed in the baby, and the mother is lying on the stomach, big pile of blood, and shot in the back. Same thing came up, question was first and we had a debate are we going to use two bags or one bag we decided we're going to use one bag we were we are not the evil people to separate the the infant from the mother no we're not going to do it And that was an absolutely gut-wrenching decision that Yossi Landau and his colleagues had to make. You know, it was so striking to me in speaking with him. He kept talking about this notion that he felt like the bodies of these people were speaking to him and screaming out for him to tell their stories, to tell the story of how they died. He also told me that he has woken up in the middle of the night now, not only by the smell of the dead flesh in his nose that still sticks, but also by the faces of those he saw in that burnt-out shelter, despite having never seen their actual faces because of how disfigured they were, he says he can see their faces as clear as day. Jake. Jeremy Diamond in Jerusalem, thank you so much for that report. Coming up, the latest developments 
On the breaking news, this hospital in Gaza that was struck killing hundreds in just moments. We're going to talk to a top advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We're going to ask exactly what happened. Stay with us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the chaos on Capitol Hill. The Republican House dysfunction continues as the fight for a new Speaker of the House continues to sputter after Republican Representative Jim Jordan failed to get enough votes. The House has recessed, at least for the time being. Leading right now another tragic turn in the war in Israel and Gaza. Hundreds of people have been killed by an explosion at a hospital in Gaza. According to the Palestinian Health Ministry, these images you're seeing show fires raging with an ambulance feet away. Inside the hospital, we see images of devastation with this blurred image of a dead body in a hallway. It's the Al-Ali Baptist Hospital in the center of Gaza City, which was reportedly housing hundreds of those already injured by airstrikes. Perhaps many more seeking shelter from those strikes. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank declared three days of mourning for the victims. As of right now, CNN cannot tell you definitively who is responsible for the strike. The Palestinian Health Ministry, controlled by Hamas, is saying that Israel is responsible. They're calling it a war crime. Israel is, of course, bombing the area, and Israel's strikes have killed hundreds of civilians without question. But Israel also points out that Hamas has been known to blame its own missile misfires on Israel. And the Israeli Defense Forces is saying unequivocally that this is the result of an Islamic Jihad missile misfire. We will bring you the facts of this incident as soon as they can be established. Another grim number just into our newsroom. At least 17 journalists have been killed during the Israel-Hamas conflict. 17, that's according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. All this on this eve of President Biden's expected visit to Israel, trying to calm any tensions in the region before an expected larger ground invasion by Israeli forces. We're going to start with CNN's Aaron Burnett, who is live in Tel Aviv for us. Aaron, as President Biden prepares to head to Israel, this would be his second visit to a war zone as president. Horror is unfolding in Gaza. Um, Tell us what Israeli officials are saying about this attack, this hospital tragedy. Well... They would agree it's horror and and obviously a great loss of civilian life, whatever the numbers are. We have no idea, right? They initially had heard 4,000 people were sheltering there, uh, maybe 1,000 dead, then 500, 300 to 500 now from the the Hamas-controlled government. As you point out, Jake, we simply don't know the scale of it. But the IDF says uh, that this barrage of rockets fired from Gaza, uh, that that they had identified one. They know where they're coming from. They identified a barrage coming up, right? That's how they get their Iron Dome to calculate in order to intercept, and that there was a group of these that passed over the hospital around the time the hospital was hit. And as you point out, and you use the words very specifically, they're actually not blaming Hamas. They're blaming Islamic Jihad. Palestinian Islamic Jihad is another uh, Islamic radical group in Gaza. And that is who they are blaming for this particular 
this particular horrific strike. They're saying they have intelligence from multiple sources, Jake, that point to that. And um, they are also saying the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here that the IDF at the time was not conducting operations around that hospital. So that's what they're saying right now. We'll see as we get more information. But as you and I both know, even if one were to formally ascertain exactly what happened and who was to blame uh, in the court of global public opinion, it may not matter. And you have some new reporting uh, on weapons uh, left behind by Hamas. Yeah, Jake, I mean, this is incredible, right? When we talk about the crime scene, the horrific crime scene of this terror attack, I actually went to an Israeli military base. And by the way, Jake, this base is ready to go. Thousands of mats where soldiers are sleeping uh, uh, just under cover, you know, the giant garages where you might store uh, large military equipment now being repurposed for military uh, for people to sleep. And also that that's where they're they're gathering these caches of weapons that they're finding. I mean, Jake, it's incredible. Hundreds of grenades, hundreds of grenades, which they've wrapped up with tape to keep the pins down. Um, RPGs, uh, all of these from the Al-Qasem brigades, um, mortars, uh, hundreds of IEDs, anti-tank mines, even some mines, Jake, that have a um, basically a magnet on the end of them. It looks like a giant crowbar with a magnet on the end. And they they traditionally will stick them to tanks to cause them to explode. It's a different type of anti-tank mine. But they say they're finding them all over these kibbutzim and they're finding them stuck to civilian cars. So everything that they're gathering here came from the streets that, that we've walked in Barrie. I mean, it littered and they're, they're, they're collecting them. Also, Jake, we had a chance to see them. And it is incredible when you see them, you see the stamp from Hamas on them. You see the ones that came from Iran. You can see the manufacture date. So all of that is very clearly visible. But they're also saying they found, you know, groups of, say, 17 cars full of dead terrorists who were eventually killed by IDF forces. And then they have to debooby trap those and, and deal with those dead bodies. So that's uh, we had a chance to see uh, just these weapons that they've seized. And it is it is incredible amount of weaponry, Jake. All right, Aaron Burnett in Tel Aviv, Israel. Thank you so much. This devastating attack at the hospital in Gaza comes as President Biden is expected to depart shortly from Washington, D.C. on Air Force One for this trip to Israel. Source familiar with the Biden administration says the president is likely to give the benefit of the doubt to Israel on who is responsible for this attack. CNN's Kayla Tausche is at the White House for us. Kayla, how does this hospital attack impact the president's trip, if at all? Uh, And what are you hearing about how the Biden administration will respond? Well, Jake, so far it doesn't appear that the hospital attack is impacting the president's trip, at least not at this stage in the planning. At least one White House official has told CNN that the trip is expected to go ahead as planned. And uh, at least half a dozen officials that are that were contacted by CNN's White House team uh, were not responsive or did not know whether uh, there would actually be an official U.S. response to this. Now, CNN's Jenny Hansler at the State Department is reporting that that source familiar says that the Biden administration will give the benefit of the doubt to Israeli rationale for that attack over what Hamas is saying here. Uh, But certainly it comes at a very precarious time with the Palestinian Authority president canceling his meeting with President Biden and other regional leaders. The two had just spoken by phone three days ago and talked about the 
need to deliver humanitarian supplies to Gaza to get some of these people uh, out of that highly populated region and also to preserve stability in the West Bank and in the region writ large. And so not having Abbas in that conversation will certainly uh, dilute what President Biden is able to achieve as part of that. But even so, uh, there are very high stakes and very clear objectives for Biden as he goes on this very extraordinary wartime trip. You know, there were discussions behind the scenes about securing some sort of humanitarian aid package. That was something that Biden wanted very clearly before he signed off on this trip. And uh, U.S. and Israeli officials wanted to know that the groundwork would be laid for that before any ground invasion into Gaza were to take place. He also wants to try to do he can to secure the release of American hostages and to keep this war from spilling over into the region. All right, Kayla Tausche, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in Mark Regev, senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and a former Israeli ambassador to the UK. Um, so, Mr. Ambassador, thanks for joining us. Israel uh, is saying that the hospital was hit by a misfired rocket uh, launched by Islamic Jihad, one that, one that fell short. Uh, the Israeli government has posted some video on X, the uh, social media site formerly known as Twitter. I, I mean, I'm looking at the video here. I, I don't really know what I'm looking at. I, I can't interpret it. That doesn't mean it's not real. I just don't know what it is. Um, is there more proof? Is this definitive proof? Um, how sure are you that this was not an accidental strike by the uh, Israeli Air Force or, or the Israeli military? Well, at the beginning, we were investigating uh, it took a, a time to find out exactly what happened, and I'm in a position now to tell you. And I can tell you unequivocally that this was an Islamic Jihad rocket. Israel knows it, and I, I have to tell you, Hamas knows it too. They, are, they know it was an Islamic Jihad rocket, and they are deliberately putting out this story for their own propaganda purposes. Uh, Islamic Jihad uh, has had problems with its rockets for years, in previous, round, in previous rounds of, of, of violence, some 33% of, of Islamic Jihad rockets fell short and landed in the Gaza Strip, often killing people. And that's apparently what has happened now. And of course, uh, uh, Hamas doesn't want to admit that. How could they? From their point of view, this is a propaganda opportunity. Let's blame the Israelis for terrible violence. It wasn't us. Pure and simple. That is a lot of damage for, for one rocket. And I'm wondering um, if you could comment on that. And also, if um, you have shown or will show uh, the U.S. government, the Biden administration, that proof and any other proof you have uh, of this being um, the responsibility of Islamic Jihad. Without going into details, I can already tell you that there have been conversations between uh, the Israeli side and the American side. We have shared the knowledge that we have, the information that we have with the Americans. And let's be clear, Israel does not target hospitals. It just, it's not in our DNA. We don't do it. Uh, uh, at the beginning, we were concerned, could it have been accidental Israeli audience? Because anyone could make a mistake. The United States could make a mistake. France can make a mistake. Britain can make a mistake. Israel can too. So we checked out the possibility that this was an Israeli mistake. But it wasn't. This was Islamic Jihad. It was their rocket. It fell short. And as I said before, not just that we know it here in Israel, Hamas knows it too, and they are deliberately lying. Um, Islamic Jihad is 
part, is Islamic Jihad part of the, the target list? Because I know you're going after Hamas in Gaza. Is Islamic Jihad also part of who you are targeting in Gaza? Yes, they are the junior partner of Hamas. Uh, they are the little brother, so to speak. Uh, they are dangerous. They are funded. If Hamas is, is funded 93% by Iran, Hamas, uh, Islamic Jihad is 100%. It's a smaller organization it has, uh, but it is very extreme. And it is, uh, as I said, it's a wholly owned Iranian subsidiary. And they are very dangerous. And in the past, they've fired rockets uh, uh, into Israel. And uh, as I said, uh, in many cases, uh, in 33% of the cases, their rockets malfunction and they land in the Gaza Strip. We had a documented case in the previous round of fighting, which I think was in 2022, if I remember correctly, where there was a case where a family was killed in a refugee camp. And of course, they were all saying, oh, terrible Israel. And then once again, it was proved conclusively that this was ordinance from Islamic Jihad that had failed and killed Palestinian civilians. And that's apparently exactly what's happened now. And, and most importantly, not only Israel knows this, I say it for the third time, Hamas knows this too, and is deliberately lying to the international community. But I suppose, Jake, mm-hmm. if we consider what Hamas has done over the last uh, a few days, yes, that massacres of innocent civilians, we should not be surprised that they have no problem in killing the truth, because if they kill human beings, if they kill babies, they can kill the truth, too. What is the latest on the Rafah crossing and the desire to get uh, Palestinian Americans out of Gaza and the desire to get relief and aid into Gaza? What, what's the latest on that? What is the holdup on that? Uh, the Egyptians blame Israel. Uh, uh, the Americans and Israelis were blaming Hamas, at least when it came to trying to get uh, Palestinian Americans out uh, is is any or is any progress being made there? Well, I'd, I'd like to tell you uh, that there's been progress made, but unfortunately, uh, uh, it hasn't. It, it was supposed to happen yesterday. We reached uh, understandings together with all the relevant parties, and there were American Palestinians who were about to leave, and we thought it was a done deal. And then Hamas turned around and said no, and it's they kept them in Gaza, and it's almost as if. The, the, the 200 uh, Israeli kidnappees, uh, the people who were, who were abducted and taken back to Gaza, who are Hamas's hostages, it's almost as if Hamas wants the American Palestinians also there as their hostages. What other explanation do you have for why they refuse to let them, let them leave? Uh, this is another sign of Hamas's brutality. They're playing hardball, not just with Israel, but with the United States as well. President Biden is still slated to arrive in Israel tomorrow. What is the goal of Prime Minister Netanyahu for his conversations with President Biden? Well, first of all, we want to say thank you. I mean, President Biden has been amazing in the moral leadership he has shown since this crisis erupted on October 7th. He was unequivocal in the language he used in condemning Hamas and, and, and the support he's shown for Israel, both in his statements and in his actions, uh, the, the resupply of weaponry to Israel, the moving of the aircraft carrier task forces to the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, America has been there. It has shown itself to be a friend. And when uh, the prime minister greets uh, 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 President Biden tomorrow on the tarmac, 
uh, and he thanks him for the support we've been receiving uh, from the United States. I think the Prime Minister will be speaking for all Israelis. America is our friend, America is our ally, and we, 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 uh, we, we want to express our appreciation. Mark Regev, thank you so much. Appreciate your time, sir. My pleasure. Coming up next, I'm going to talk to retired U.S. Army General David Petraeus about the conflicting reports of what happened on the ground at that hospital in Gaza and much more. Stay with us. Just moments ago, we saw President Biden get into his presidential motorcade. He's headed to Joint Base Anders, where he will then aboard Air Force One and the plane will take off and he will depart on his trip to Israel. He is expected to arrive tomorrow. Confusion is, of course, playing out in Israel and Gaza over the cause of the hospital blast. Horrific. Hundreds are dead. Just moments ago, you heard a senior aide, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, tell me that the IDF is asserting unequivocally that the blast was not because of Israel. It was the result of a misfired rocket fired by the militant group Islamic Jihad. Let's go now to retired U.S. Army General David Petraeus, also the former director of the CIA. He has a brand new book titled Conflict, The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Uh, General, always good to have you on. One of the things that uh, struck me about the book, which is an area of expertise, which is something that I hope the Israelis are reading, is about urban combat uh, and the 2004 Battle of Fallujah, uh, the largest of the Iraq War. Bloody, costly, street by street, um, and we had uh, General Kimmon here not long ago, and he was saying that what Israel is going to face, what the Israeli forces are going to face in Gaza will be probably even more grueling uh, than Fallujah. What, what do you think? Oh, well, it'll be orders of magnitude more difficult. Uh, the enemy has had months to prepare the defenses. They'll undoubtedly employ improvised explosive devices suicide bombers, car bombs, tunnels, a lot of infrastructure that they have. They know the territory very, very well, and it's many times the size of Fallujah. We did a number of urban operations uh, over those years, and then more recently, we watched one that might be more appropriate as an analogy, which was the Iraqi security forces supported by a U.S.-led coalition uh, clearing the Islamic State out of Mosul, a city about the same size as Gaza City. And again, it's very, very challenging fighting in this hospital bombing. And by the way, I'll take the side of the IDF uh, spokesman any day over uh, Hamas, needless to say. They're in a democracy. The truth is going to come out. They know it. Uh, and they've done apparently a very good and thorough investigation quite quickly. Uh, but in the case of urban combat, it, it, you're going to have uh, tremendous damage to civilian infrastructure. You're going to have considerable civilian loss. You're going to take a lot of friendly casualties. You, you don't just have to clear uh, every building, floor, room, basement, tunnel. You have to leave substantial forces behind or else the enemy will re-infiltrate. And you have to do this progressively, sequentially. You have to clear and hold and then continue farther, spread the oil spot. In fact, it really should be thought of as a counterinsurgency operation, not just a conventional military operation, because you are fighting among the people and because of the importance of not overlooking what happens after Hamas is destroyed. And by the way, the spokesman today said they also intend to dismantle the Hamas political structure, the political wing that's different from the military wing, uh, which is the Hamas terrorists and also the Islamic Jihad terrorists. Right. But then the question is, what next? Who's going to take over? Who's right. going to oversee? 
the, there has to be nation building. There's going to be restoration of basic services, repair of damaged infrastructure, uh, getting schools, markets, clinics all reopened. You know that. We've learned all that sometimes the hard way. We learned in the fight to Baghdad that you've got to have a very good plan with a lot of different assumptions uh, because once you take down the regime and you turn to the folks that said, just get us to Baghdad, Dave, we'll take it from there, that plan proved inadequate. So I think the big subject of discussion, I suspect, already between the Israeli generals and the political authorities uh, is about what comes after. They're going to take enormous uh, casualties to do this. I believe that it's right to destroy uh, Hamas, but you can't have that for naught. This can't be another case where you mow the lawn all the way down to the dirt in this case, but then you pull back out and the remnants will be able to reconstitute themselves. So what follows? Could there yeah. be an interim international authority? What is it? I don't, I doubt, I mean, the, the ambassador told me uh, Sunday that they do not want to reoccupy no. Gaza. So, I nope. mean, I, I think and the it, president has said, don't do it. Yeah. So it has to be some other. So what the is United Nations solution? or the Arab League or, or some group, but, the, the but is, they're going to have to fight because there will be an insurgency. You know, they'll try to retake control, the remnants of Gaza and there will be of Hamas. There will be some of those there. So this is the real challenge, Jake. I'm not sure it's getting quite enough attention. In the book, we talk about the importance of a strategic leader getting the big ideas right. This is crucial. Getting the strategy. Right. Vengeance is not a strategy. And that's uh, my next military question. Military component is some, but you have to do more. And that's my next question, because I've been thinking about how, and understandably so, but how immediate and swift the response by the Israeli military was in the aftermath of, of Hamas's barbaric terrorist attack on October 7th, which of course, reminds me of 9-11. Um, and you remember when I interviewed you, when I did uh, the documentary about 20 years of war in Afghanistan. Um, and I also interviewed General McChrystal um, for that same documentary. And he, he told me something interesting, and I want to get your, uh, your take on it. Because I said, if you could go back, what would you do differently? He, he, listen to your, your colleague and friend, General McChrystal. Right after the 9-11 attacks, I would have made a decision inside the U.S. government to do nothing substantive for a year. And what I mean by nothing, no bombing, no strikes, etc. I would have gone around the world as the aggrieved party and built up a firm coalition for what ought we do about Al-Qaeda. I would have done a mass effort to train Americans in Arabic, Pashto, Urdu, Dari, to get ourselves ready to do something that we knew would be very, very difficult. Now, I said to him, if you were president, you also would be impeached for not doing, <laughs> for, for, for not doing anything after the 9-11 attack. But he has a point. But, but he has a point. And, he and, does and, have a point. And I, and I want you to talk about that, about the sure. idea of you get, you get a horrifically hit, but yep. you take a breath before responding. Yes. Look, keep in mind, this is much worse than 9-11 right. in relative terms. You it's, know, like 30, is, it's like 35,000 people being killed. It's, Jake, it's actually over 40,000 okay. now because they're up to 1,300. So, yes. And so that response, the desire for vengeance is absolutely understandable. And there should be vengeance. There should be destruction of the organization that did this, but not if you haven't thought through what comes after that. And that's, I think, the component of this that certainly is not yet visible. I'm sure that they're wrestling with this. I'm sure part of the reason the president is then going to Amman, Jordan, is to start discussing that. And one would hope that some of the Arab countries in particular, 
in the region that have often expressed sympathy for the Palestinians uh, will contribute to some kind of effort uh, that would enable the rebuilding. And so, and, and Prime Minister Netanyahu, I think, should provide a vision for what will, life will be like for the Palestinian people. Uh, not just in Gaza, by the way, but also in the West Bank, something that has just been looming out there for quite some time in yep. any event. Yep. Let's, let's let this be a catalyst. Remember, after the 73 war, uh, all of a sudden you had peace between the two warring factions, uh, between Egypt uh, and Israel and arrangements with Syria and Jordan as well. Of course, a very different situation. Henry Kissinger, I was just uh, in a meeting with him, he could call four people and get that deal done. President of Egypt, uh, Assad in, in Damascus, the king in Amman, mm -hmm. and Golda Meir. Yeah. There's nobody here to do that. So you've got, this is much more challenging in that regard. And I'd contend that the military task here yeah. is more challenging as well. It's not tank on tank out in the desert. Certainly there was an existential moment for, for Israel when Egypt achieved the early success. But once that was resolved, that was a straightforward military operation. This is much more than just an offensive operation, a clear hold and build, you Absolutely. have to then have what's going to follow. Absolutely. Retired General David Petraeus, maybe they should call you. You'd be, you'd be good to helm this. <laughs> the you, book Jim. is Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Please check it out. Coming up, CNN is live on the ground in the Israeli uh, town of Stirot. It's essentially become a ghost town since the Hamas terrorist attacks. Up next, you're going to hear what the residents who decided to stay there are saying. Stay with us. We have a live look now at Joint Base Andrews. President Biden is expected to board Air Force One momentarily to depart on his trip to Israel and the region. Uh, he is uh, going to do this even after the horrific hospital blast in Gaza, though the administration is expected to defer to Israel on who was ultimately responsible for that attack. Israel, of course, blaming Islamic Jihad. Uh, they say that it was a missile misfire. CNN's Nick Robertson is in Israel, just north of Gaza, where there seems to be an eerie calm before the storm. Starot, a mile from Gaza, is deserted. 90% of residents have gone. Even abandoned pets are learning when to run. Bolting with incoming rocket warnings. It is an eerie place. The police station, overrun by Hamas 10 days ago, bulldozed flat. You can hear the sound of the drones in the sky all the time. Over here, the shell casings from the firefight, still here. Bullet holes in the wall, still there. It's like everyone is waiting for the next move. For local officials, that next move is President Biden's visit. I don't know what Biden is thinking. I wish I knew. If I could be a little bird in his ear, I tell him, hey, if you take a stance now, I believe that if they will take a stance and not fold, we'll be able to get our people back, all the hostages. Over the years, Sturrott has become synonymous with resistance to Hamas's rockets. It's one of the most fired upon Israeli towns. But America is a true friend. America. Today, politicians here to show their solidarity. Boaz Bismut is a member of the Prime Minister's Likud party. We shall never put our friends in America in a position 
where they will feel uncomfortable, meaning we're not going against civilians. And Biden, is he going to tell you that, that to respect that and for you to take that very tough decision, do not go into Gaza right now because that will, that will just inflame the region? I think that President Biden and any American president uh, knows exactly uh, the morale of the Israeli army. <clears throat> and we know how to put limits to ourselves. But there is one thing we shall not put a limit, is the fact that Hamas will not exist. To do that, a military ground incursion into Gaza appears inevitable. Along the border with Gaza here, there's a real sense of calm before a possible storm. The number of strikes compared to the last few days seems to be down. And that town you can see there with the tower blocks, that's Beit Hanun. It was one of the first places the Israelis targeted in their 2014 incursion. And it could be again now. So what is this hammer? Tour guide Robbie Berman came to Starot to tell journalists about his fund to offer Gazans money for helping free hostages. He's a Palestinian. His message for President Biden is typical of many here. The pressure on Arabic countries to allow those innocent Arabs, those innocent Palestinians in Gaza who are not supportive of Hamas, to get them visas to go into other Arab countries. And all those Palestinians that would go out into other Arab countries, does that not for Palestinians look like 48 or 67 just losing their homeland again? Yeah, and it's sad. It's sad for the Palestinians. Life is sad, war is sad, collateral damage is sad. I feel for the innocent Palestinians, enough. We can't live under this terror anymore. More of that terror in Starot just hours before President Biden's anticipated arrival. Several missiles from Gaza crashing into the town. This looks like the fin of the missile over here. And you can see where it came. It smashed through the outer wall, through that window, through this wall here, ending up here. Everything inside the house torn apart. Fortunately, when it hit, no one was home. Hard to remember a time in the Mideast when an American president's powers were more tested. And I think it's really striking, uh, particularly as we've heard from so many Israeli politicians, we've heard from the Israeli Defense Force this evening, from the president's office, from the foreign ministry as well, about this hospital, that it was an Islamic Jihad rocket error that caused all the casualties in the hospital this evening. A politician we were speaking to there talking about not wanting to embarrass President Biden, uh, not causing civilian casualties. And I think perceptions here take over. The environment President Biden comes into is one where in Gaza the perception is inevitably going to be that this was, despite what Israel says, this was an Israeli missile strike. It's going to be very hard to break that perception. So trying for President Biden to try to move the ball forward, to try to calm uh, Israel's strength of feeling at the moment about crushing Hamas and, and how to do it. To General Petraeus's points there in your discussion just a little while ago, Jake, um, this is going to be a huge, huge challenge in this now very, even more emotionally challenged environment. Indeed. Nick Robertson and Stirot, stay safe, my friend. Thank you so much. A live look again at Air Force One. President Biden will depart in just moments for this high-stakes trip to Israel in the region. Back home, of course, his potential 2024 rivals are weighing in on the conflict. One of them will join me next. Stay with us. 
Amid this conflict between Hamas and Israel and the dysfunction among House Republicans, there is, of course, also another big story, the race for the 2024 Republican presidential primary. Joining us now is Republican presidential candidate, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Thank you so much for being here. It's so good to see you. Hey, good to see you again. So let's talk about the conflict in the Mideast. We're That's still right. learning more about this cause of this hospital blast. It's believed to have killed hundreds of people in, in Gaza. Um, if you were president of the United States right now, yeah. how do you think you would be handling this crisis? Well, the first thing you do is make sure that there's no daylight between America and Israel. I would say setting shoulder to shoulder and back to back with no daylight is so important. And what we saw is an atrocity that just makes your heart sick. Evil brought upon the Jewish people in Israel with Hamas's objective to eliminate Jews on earth, not just Israel, but everywhere there are, six million in America. We've seen anti-Semitism continue to grow. We have a lot of work to do. One of the ways that we help is to make sure that we support Prime Minister Netanyahu's efforts in wiping Hamas off the map. I am thankful for the way that he started the process, which is to send the signal into Gaza to get out. Being very specific to give civilians an access opportunity, a way out, is something that was not afforded to the people of Israel. Um, also important, I think, don't you think, to, to, to send the message to the world and in the United States, Hamas is not the Palestinians, as you were clearly suggesting with the corridor, and Hamas is not uh, Muslim Americans and Arab Americans. We saw that horrific crime in yeah, Illinois the, the other day. The, the, yeah, the guy who st- stabbed the six-year-old. Oh. What? Disgusting. Yeah. That's murder. That person should be put in jail, yeah. period. No question about that. But we should not stand for hate at all, and we should certainly uh, stand with our allies. We must be loyal to our allies while being lethal to our adversaries, without any question. One, one last question on this is just, um, what lessons do you think, what lessons have, have you learned as an American from 9-11 and how this country reacted to 9-11, the, the war on terror, war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan, that you think Israel should have learned or could learn so they don't make the same mistakes that maybe we made? Well, listen, I think what you're going to see is a proportional response, which is eliminating Hamas as a proportional response, number one. Number two, doing it in a way that actually gathers support, gathers allies. The, the morality that they're going into Gaza with so far is something that I think is important for an important distinction going forward. I think you saw that with our 9-11 response as well. I'd say the third thing that you learn is the importance of having allies and having a Western alliance. One of the challenges that we see with Hamas, their objective, as I said earlier, is not just to eliminate uh, Israel or Jews. The third uh, part of that tranche that they're looking at is the elimination of Western democracy as we know it today. And so the lessons that you can learn from 9-11 and apply it to today are the lessons that I think I feel coming out of Israel and certainly specifically out of the prime minister as it relates to discipline, refrain from responding immediately He's taken a couple days. That's, that's really important as it sends a message throughout the world that the moral compass is intact in spite of seeing your people's gosh, beheading of yeah. your kids, burning the bodies that I saw so charred. Having the discipline after the attack sends a strong message of leadership. All right, Senator Tim Scott, good to see you. Sorry we're squeezing. It's a crazy show today because of yep. the... Chaos on the Hill. Please come back soon. Look forward it's to it. good to see you. It's been too long. God bless. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Coming up, I'm going to speak to a doctor on the ground in Gaza as the hospitals are overflowing and running out of the fuel and the supplies they need. Stay with us. 
As Israeli forces continue to battle Hamas in Gaza, one hospital has come up with a creative solution to keep patients and staff safe during war. CNN's Sarah Seidner takes us now inside an underground parking lot that has been transformed into an operational hospital. A doctor checks in on a patient, just an ordinary day in the hospital, except there's nothing ordinary about where this is taking place. This is the Bunker Underground Hospital. This is a functioning hospital. In the highest level, every service, every technology, everything that they need, we provide them. And everything is being supplied here. It has the look and the feel of a regular hospital with all the things that you'd expect, except for when you turn the corner and you can really see this is an underground parking garage. At least it was. Vehicle parking spaces are now for patient beds, driveways for push carts. This is how Tel Aviv Sarovsky Medical Center is preparing to treat patients in wartime. So it's as perfectly normal as usual in the most abnormal scenario. Exactly. Yeah. This is the right phrase to put it. This is the result of 14 years of planning for war. We planned this underground hospital 14 years ago, more or less, after the Second Lebanon War. Tel Aviv was, was for the first time, got missile attack. That was then, before Hamas stormed across the border by land, air and sea on Shabbat, killing, kidnapping and maiming men, women and children. Several floors above the hospital bunker, 60 hospital beds are now filled with victims from the Hamas attack. I went to a party with my friends. It was a music festival. And in uh, 6.30, something like that, alarm started. He and his friends managed to jump in their car, but then... There was a squad of uh, four terrorists just started spraying at us, shooting without conscience. Just shooting at you, just indiscriminate. Just, yes, just shooting without conscience. His car, among those, abandoned on the side of the road. He ran and hid for the next five hours, blood pouring from his arm, where a bullet smashed through his skin and bone. There is no one in this world who wants peace more than I do. Trust me. I've been four years in the army. I got shot over peace. I don't want this. None of us wanted this to happen. Do you still think that peace is possible? Wow. I used to believe in peace all the time, but right now, after seeing what I saw, Itzhak Rabin, who was the Prime Minister of Israel, said something very Itzhak important. Rabin. Yes. He said that peace you don't make with friends, you make with enemies. But even enemies need to be human beings. No matter who you are, this hospital will treat you deep below the Earth's crust. It has already moved a whole section of the hospital to get the staff and patients prepared for life below during war. What do you think about being in a parking garage? <laughs> He's enjoying every minute of it. Does this feel different this time? It feels different because we know that we, it's not like kind of a limited operation. It's a war time. And our thanks to Sarah Seidner for that report. We'll be right back. Just into CNN, the White House says that the summit between President Biden and several Arab leaders in Jordan has been canceled. 
This comes as President Biden departed on his trip to Israel just moments ago. We're going to continue to monitor this trip and the confusion and chasm playing out between Israel and Palestinians over the hospital blast that killed hundreds. If you ever miss an episode of Lead, you can listen to the show where you get your podcast. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer. He's in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.